So uh, I've had a creative moment this uh, week. Christmas. I got Christmas all figured out. You're going to love this. So I'm talking to Craig. We're talking about the staging we're going to do out back. And he says, yeah, I got this buddy that rents ice skating rinks. And so my mind started turning and I said, that's it. We're going to have an ice community ice skating rink. We're going to theme it around Central Park at Christmas time. We're going to have carolers. We're going to have chestnuts roasting outside. Isn't that going to be awesome? For those of you who don't ice skate, learn. They have those ones with like four runners on them, you know. You can just kind of get out there and kind of navigate your way around. Hey, we're, uh, we're studying the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are intended to get your attention, especially in a world, in a culture that hates rules. You have to understand, God is a rule giver. He hands you rules, and he does it not because he hates you. He does it because he loves you. He knows the quickest way to a relationship with him is to follow what he says in his word. So when God revealed these Ten Commandments and more to Moses, it was not intended to stop there, but to find its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and he said this, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. In other words, it's that Greek word pleroma, it's the idea that it's going to, I'm going to bring it to fruition to a full understanding of what it means. And when the Pharisees said, what does it mean? Jesus said, I'm going to sum it up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what it's all about. And until you understand that concept, because you see, every sin you'll ever commit is a violation of that. I stop loving God with all my heart. I stop loving my neighbor. I stop loving myself. Every, every sin you'll ever commit is a violation of that commandment. And it sounds simple, doesn't it? Just try loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Just try it for two minutes. And how about your neighbor as yourself? Well, I can get the God easier than my neighbor, right? It's so awesome. I was thinking about this this week, and I have two Muslim neighbors in a little cul-de-sac and one Buddhist. And my Muslim neighbor has a tendency to get out there and, and put out the little prayer thing on the front driveway and chant and call on Allah. And I was standing in my driveway and he was out there chanting and doing whatever he does and God says, do you love him? Because I do. I go, I do love him. And you know what? He's doing the best he can with the information he has right now. It's my job to give him more information. Amen? You see, that was what Jesus did. He came into the world to bring life to people. We're in this journey. We've been in this journey with Israel now three months. They will be 11 months now at the mountain of God, Sinai, and they're getting lessons from God. They're getting instructed on what does it mean to walk with God, to know God. And he would give them three different categories of law. He would give them the moral law that we're going to be talking about today. He would give them the civil law and give them instructions on how they were to operate in society. And then he would give them the ceremonial law 
which may seem not that important to you because you say, well, all those rituals and all that stuff, the tabernacle and all that, what does that have to do with anything? The ceremonial law was all about pointing to the nature, the character of God, and the coming of Jesus Christ. For example, they had this big tabernacle, this big tent that they met in. And God would show up in that tent. It was called the Shekinah glory of God. The glory would inhabit that place when God came down on the Day of Atonement. And guess what that tent was made out of? Animal skin. It was God in the flesh in the wilderness, pointing to Jesus who would be God in the flesh in our wilderness. And that's why he said, it says the word became flesh and dwelt. That literally is the word tabernacle. The word became, word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. It was the glory of the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. In other words, that tabernacle back there prepared us for this tabernacle of the coming God in the flesh. On this wilderness journey, let me give you a couple of things that are important. Number one, you can be in the middle of a, of a miracle and not even know it. How many of you have heard that before? Amen. You can be in the middle of a miracle and not even know it. I want you to realize every day is a miracle. A miracle of God. You just have to open your eyes and see what God is doing. We've been trying to get all this stuff prepared for this big event this weekend, and it is a watershed event for us. People say, what do you expect? I don't know. Every week is a new day for us. I can tell you what Easter will be like because we've had one of those. We've had a Mother's Day. I can tell you a little bit about that. I don't know what this big event's going to be. I'm hoping there are thousands of people frustrated they can't even get in. And we capture some great footage. And we tell them how to walk in the Spirit. Amen? And you're going to park where? Somebody said, right out front. And I know some of you will, and we've got video cam. We're going to be running it. And the next week, we're going to show it up here, all the guys who did not follow directions. Rule breakers, every one of you. Also, let me tell you this. The journey is not measured by the distance you travel, but by the change that occurs in your life. doesn't matter how long you've been in this journey. How much change has happened in your life? How much transformation into the, into the very image of Jesus Christ has happened in your life? That's what counts. Everything else is what does it mean? I've been a Christian 30 years, so what? Has there been a change in your life? And then remember, this journey as you go on it, it will probe the very nature of God. You're going to find yourself in situations where you're going, God, what are you up to? God, I don't understand, even questioning God at times. Trust me, you're going, to probe your, you're going to be probing into the very nature and the character of God himself. Let's look at our text, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to just look at uh, four verses here, verses 3 through 6. Listen to what it says. Pretty clear. You shall have no other gods before me. You know what I've learned about idols? We don't recognize the idols in our own culture because the idols in our own culture disguise themselves in such a way we just call it part of the fabric of our society. When we go out of our culture, we easily identify idols. Now think about that. You, in other words, you can have an idol in your life right now and you probably don't see it, don't know it because it's a part of your, your cultural fabric. 
He goes on to say this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, nor shall you serve them. Now that sounds easy to us because we don't have a tendency to create little idols and set them up on our shelves or park them in our garages or anything, do we? I guess you got that one. He says, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Did you know God is jealous for you? Jealous for you. He loves you. He doesn't want you loving anybody else. You see, there is a good jealousy, isn't there? I mean, for example, if, if some guy's looking at my wife and I'm seeing him looking at my wife, I'm thinking, whoa, I'm jealous here. This is not a bad jealous. This is a good jealous, right? Get your eyes off my wife, right? Or I can look and go, I'm glad you're looking at my wife because I'm glad she's worth looking at. Or I could have a bad jealousy, and I say, you're looking at my wife, and I go over and beat the guy up. That's, that's a good jealousy, right? But, but then if he's stronger than me, beats me up, that's a bad jealousy. <laughs> you got to think jealousy through the whole process of it, right? He said, I am a jealous God. Now, look at this. This is really interesting. We're going to get into this as much as we can. If we need more time, we'll pick it up next time. Our sermons are kind of like link sausage. We just cut it off and pick it up next, next time, wherever it goes. This is what he says. Visiting the inequity of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. What an interesting, interesting thought. We'll get to that a little later. Idolatry, what is it? It is the great enemy of the gospel. Idolatry is the great enemy of the gospel. It is an offense to the true God. When I put anything in front of God, it is an offense, and, it's, and, it, and it hurts the effectiveness of the gospel to change lives. When we ascribe attention or value to something, we are moving, whether we know it or not, into a spiritual dimension of control. I was watching old footage of Michael Jackson after he died, and I was watching how people reacted. And I looked at that, and I watched it, and I thought, how interesting, because this is not just something natural. There seems to be something spiritual behind it. There was a, an attraction there that was very unusual. Sure, they liked his music. Sure, they, they, they liked him as a performer, but there was something going on there. There was a dynamic. You couldn't get enough of something. There's a spiritual dimension of control that is apart from God. You see, the human heart, your heart, is an idol factory. It cranks out devotion all day long. Why, we even have a television show called American what? Idol. Because we want our own. We don't want to have Europe idols. We want our own idols. But idols destroy us. We sacrifice for them, don't we? I know men who say, well, you know, I don't know what my wife wants. After all, I'm a great provider. Um, maybe she'd like to see you once in a while. 
You see, the question is not, are you a good provider? The question is, are you a provider of good? Anybody can provide, but are you providing good? Are you providing God in your household? We sacrifice our health, our time, our families to the culture God who dictates how we think, how we feel, and how we act. And we just, we just stand there and listen and obey. And we're all subject to it from time to time, are we not? Listen to this. An idol is someone or something that occupies the place of God in your life. It gives you identity, meaning, value, purpose, love, significance, or security. This commandment forces us to ask this question. Is Jesus enough or do I need something else? Would I be satisfied with Jesus? Or do I need more? Because you know when it's all said and done, when this life is is all over, guess what? That's all you really have is your relationship with him. And as we stand before him, he's going to ask us those telling questions. Wasn't I enough? Did you really need more? Let's talk about the object of our worship. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. I want you to think about it like this. Think about the true God. Just kind of create a a little grid on your paper here. And think about idols. What's the difference between these two? We think about what is it that really makes them, distinguishes them one from another. What does God expect? What does God demand? And I think the first thing we'd have to say, well, the true God, one thing we do know, know about him, he is unseen. And idols, why they're seen, right? He talked about making something, carving it with wood, putting it up and looking at it and, and, and honoring it. And then also we, we think about the true God. Well, the true God is sovereign, isn't he? That means he's all-powerful. But idols, they, they're subject to greater powers, greater authority, so they're different. And then we think about, and this is an interesting word. I want to put it up here so we have a little bit of of learning that goes on here. How about this word immutable? That means he's changing, unchanging, but when we think about the idols, they're whimsical. When I say God is immutable, I say this, and it says it in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, I am the Lord and I change not. You know why that's important? Because some people say, well, I like the God of the Old Testament, but I'm not really crazy about the God of the New Testament. Same God. Sorry. Not two gods going on there. Well, why do you act like that? You want the answer? Write it down. I'm going to give it to you. Nobody's ever given it to you this straight. Are you ready? Because he's God. When you're God, you can do things like that. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to come to some reasoning point and go, I, now if I could just get all of mankind to vote on the way that I prescribe my, my, my whole creation, I'll act with great confidence. It's not God. God created us. He said God created us to worship. But listen to what it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. For they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he said, uh, um, well, this is what I think God is like. And he starts to tell me this thing, and he had a little bit of Christianity there, had a little bit of Buddhism, he had a little bit of, 
you know, philosophy and their little Nietzsche in there. He had all this kind of goofy stuff going on, and I go, where did you read about this guy? Well, I just kind of made him up. That's what this verse is talking about in Romans 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and it says they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator God who is forever to be praised. You know that you create gods in your own mind when you, when you move away from this book and you start creating this framework for what God is like. I'll hear people say, well, I know the Bible says that, but. A lot of buts running around this world. Have you noticed that? But. But, but, just big butts everywhere. We become like the one we worship. Did you ever think about that? In fact, someone has said the gods we serve write their names upon our faces. Psalm 115, verse 8 says this, those who make them, that is, idols. Psalm 115, verse 8, those who make them, that is, idols, are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. I begin to form and fashion uh, some idol that I love, that I respect, and I become like that. So if I take all of my money and I buy my idols and I get them out there where I like them, then I become indebted to them because they have more control over me, and now I have to become like them, and I become just like that idol I have created, selfish and stingy, and I can't give. The other thing that's interesting is idols are a front for demonic control. Just write this re reference down. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, verses 19 and 20. It's the context is the Lord's Supper, communion. And it talks about the, the, this sacrificing to idols, and it says that they really are demonic spirits. You see, behind every idol that we create is a spiritual force that seeks to control us. Isaiah 44 is really an interesting chapter. I'd encourage you to read it sometime. But in Isaiah 44, it talks about a man who, who creates his own God. He carves it. He, gets a, he makes it out of a wood that won't rot because it wouldn't pay to have your God rot, would it? And then he, he gets it and he puts it on his mule and he has to carry it away because he has a God that can't carry him. He has to carry his God around. And then it closes in verse 20 with this word, A deceived heart has turned aside and cannot deliver his soul. You know what idols do? They deceive us. You promised me this, and I didn't get that. I got it at first, but they, they take more control, and they give you less and less satisfaction as time goes on. Anybody ever bought a new car? I remember buying my first new car. It was a 1984 Chrysler. It was the only car I didn't have that didn't smell like McDonald's French fries. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, buy any used car, you're going to find McDonald's French fries under the seat. And I bought that car, and I had my first car payment ever. I didn't care because it smelled good inside. I did have two preschoolers at the time. You know what that means? It would smell like French fries within six months. But I'm driving my car, and I'm thinking, oh, this is great, and I love my new car, and, and I'm feeling good in it, and I'm washing it every day, and... You know, then I paint the first payment, and I don't like it. And then I realize i got to do this for the next 36 months. And I get to where I don't like my car. And, and then it was black. It was solid black. And I went out one day, and for some reason, I, I think they're in cahoots with the paint companies because 
for some reason, they put gray primer underneath a black car. And I went out, and somebody had opened their door, and a little dot right on the side of my car door. And every time I walked out to get in my car, I saw the dot. And I developed a dot complex for my idol. My idol had a flaw. It was not a good idol anymore. I, I tried everything. I tried to sneak up on it so I wouldn't see the dot. Idols are, they demand more and more control. You know why? Because John 8, 44 says this, says of, of Satan, it says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Anybody ever been offended? Ooh. Do you ever think that could be an idol? Easily offended. You want, to, you want to try a really big goal? You're a goal kind of person? I'm even goal kind of people. Just I like goals. Here's a goal. Try to go 24 hours with what, without being offended. If you get that one, try a week. Try to live your life totally unoffended. That's a pretty good job, isn't it? Right there. Why do I get offended? Because I think I deserve better. Oh, you mean no one should talk to me like that? Who do I think I am? Am I God now? Let me read this quote. But anyone with a hierarchy of values has placed something at its apex, and whatever that is, it is the God he serves. Now listen to what he said here. Slosberg said this. He said, if you think about it, it's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We think out here, but what is it up here that's capturing your attention? This is your God. It's interesting on Maslow's hierarchy of needs that the thing that ends up at the top is what color you paint your house. If you go down here, you don't have much money, you just want paint on your house. You know, then you get up a little bit higher, you get good paint. Then you get to the top, you got to have a designer paint. Got to have a Ralph Lauren paint. I got Ralph Lauren paint. I've had people, this is Ralph Lauren, I like the Ralph Lauren. I'm looking around for the little horse on the wall. Where's the horse? we got a coyote in our wall. I don't know what that is. You've all seen the coyote, right? Turn around and look at the coyote. I was so offended I had a guy call it a dog this week. <laughs> that dog, that's not a dog, that's a coyote. Give it some respect. <laughs> Secondly, I want you to see the guarding of our hearts, the guarding of our hearts. Listen to what it says in, in verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, earth beneath water under the earth, or bow down to them or serve them. What is the appeal for idols in our life? I think, first of all, the appeal is that they give us a sense of identity. Identity. I feel like I belong. And that gives me worth. And so I'm willing to give you some of my attention and my devotion and my money if I feel like I belong. They also promise freedom. Idols promise freedom. If you have this, you're going to experience freedom. They promise you a better future. If you just tap into this, you're going to have a, a great future. Think about that. In the Garden of Eden, what Satan promised, he says, well, in the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. Well, who doesn't want to be like God? I want to be like God. I'm tired of God kicking me around. I, you know, God's kind of a cosmic killjoy. He's not letting me have fun. I'd like to be God. Just God for a day, all I want, just today, God, can I be God? He says, you've been 
trying to be God all your life. Time you die to self. They promise you status. Now, I don't have any problem wearing designer clothes. I don't have any problem with little alligators, horses, crocodiles, anything else you want to put on your shirt. But I do notice that I feel different when I have one on. I do. I feel better about myself. I look in the mirror, and I got that little horse, and I go, I got the horse. Yeah, am I the only guy who feels that way? Or how about the jeans that fit just right? You know what I'm talking about? I got to have those jeans. They fit me perfectly. I can't find any other jeans. Why do the jeans that fit good cost more? I put them on, I feel like I look better. I'm thinner, taller, more manly. You know what I'm talking about, ladies. Don't be looking at me like a Catholic in a new gate. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, how do you guard your heart? How do you guard your heart? I want to take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If you don't have time to look it up, just listen. But this is a really interesting passage dealing with how do I protect myself from idols. Listen to what it says. I'm just going to walk you through it slowly. It, because it says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. For the Lord, word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, but also in every place. Here's how you guard, guard your heart from idols. Let the word of God go forth from your mouth wherever you are. Speak his word wherever you go. Speak his word wherever you go. It goes on to say, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Let your faith toward God go out. So begin to tell people what God is doing. Now, it says in the book of Revelation that the spirit, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When you begin to tell people testimony of what God is doing, you know what it does to their faith? It raises their faith, and you break the back of Satan who's trying to destroy you. So can I just tell you that pulling off this event next weekend has been a lot of stuff? Can I just say that? And I'm not trying to give anybody credit, take anybody away, or pour me anything. It's just a lot of stuff. And, you know, you kind of work on this limited budget, and you're trying to do this and this and this, and I'm down recording radio spots. We're putting ads in the, in the newspaper. And then I'm thinking, where are we going to park all these people? I mean, did anybody here experience parking problems today? Well, imagine if there's 12 to 1,500 people, which is what we're expecting next week. I said, we need shuttles. So I call up my buddy, and I say, hey, we need shuttles. He says, okay, let me get a price. He said, I'll see if he can get a deal, and comes back and says they're going to be $2,000 for four shuttles and drivers. Well, that's not good news. We're trying to round up Ford Fiestas now just to kind of haul everybody. <laughs> so he calls me back, and he says, hey, I got good news. He's cutting the price in half, $1,000. I'm saying, it's getting better. And I'm just thinking, okay, God, keep pushing this one. He calls me back and he said, hey, me and a couple of buddies are going to take care of it. It's going to cost the church nothing. Yeah. 
testimony of Jesus. So then I'm thinking, you know, just little things, the details. You know, I'm thinking, well, we need a lot of extra linens. You know, we have like four black tablecloths, and we just kind of pass them all around to running events and everything else. And I remember there's a guy in our church, and his parents have this, have this linen rental lease sell manufacturer. I don't know what it is. I call him up. Yeah, how many you need? How many skirts? I'll deliver them, pick them up the day after. Got all the linens you need. Testimony of Jesus. You seen the coffee, those big coffee things we have, and we go to Starbucks and we rent coffee and then we drink it and we get, pick it back the empty container, those big green things. And so Tammy made a call today to someone who's in our fellowship said, well, why don't I just buy four of those? And then we can fill them up over here at my place. And I'm just watching little details start to come together. I get a call from the school. And they said, you know, we're doing graduation on Friday night and there's like 1,200 chairs set up out here. Maybe they would allow you to to just use them, you know, and you wouldn't have to pay. And as it turned out that the school, you know, but when the school calls me, I get nervous. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't like hearing from them. They scare me. I know because I, I was in trouble all the time in school. You know that. And I, and, I, and I thought to myself, whether it happens or not, the fact that they thought of us was the favor of God. As it turned out, they wanted us to camp. The chair people wanted us to camp up here for three nights and watch their chairs, and they weren't going to charge. They weren't going to give us a discount. I said, well, "Forget that. We're going to go over here and get no camping chairs." So we ended up with just a great testimony of a school and officials that are loving us. I mean, I think that's a, a testimony of Jesus, is it not? Our, our faith is going forth, and it goes on to say here, and how you have turned from idols. Listen to this. This was what was going forth, how you turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. That's going out there. That's how you guard yourself, that you have turned to God. The blood of Christ has cleansed you. You've embraced the gospel. You're living out your faith. And then it goes on to say the last part, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know what we do? We live our life in expectancy of the return of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. What good news is that? Let me show you how, let me show you how idols work and behind the scenes this demonic spirits because over there in Acts chapter 16, there's a slave girl. And this slave girl apparently is able to, to be a fortune teller, to tell truth. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the dark world, in this black magic kind of world that she was functioning in, and she had masters, and her masters were, were glad to have her because they were making her much money, and the entire city was, was under the spell, if you were, of that. In fact, if you go to the next chapter, 1716, it says the city of Athens was totally given over to idols. And what I saw is I began to see a pattern. You see it beginning in Deuteronomy 13. You see it over here in Acts 16 and 17. You see a pattern. You know what happens? It starts with an individual who's under the control of someone. They may even look good and legitimate, and it spreads to the whole city because what they do there in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, when they realize the fortune is gone, the revenue stream is drying up in the city, they take him outside and they beat Paul and Silas. So here's what I'm telling you. You have to, you have to guard yourself for idols in this way. Be careful of what's happening in your own world. That's your sphere. Watch who's trying to exercise control over you and then be guarded about the territory you live in, the city you live in. 
and ask yourself, God, what is going? Ask for spiritual insight into what's happening in your city, in your neighborhood, and begin to pray. Begin to pray that God brings his favor and his spirit there. You see, the devil and demons, they don't have a right to torment believers unless you give them access into your life. Remember, demons are lawless criminals in the spirit realm. Access happens when we want something more than we want God. The devil is an equal opportunity destroyer. He will destroy your life and not care. 1 John 5, verses 20 and 21, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God in eternal life. And then he says this, he, the last verse of 1 John, little children, guard yourself from idols because they will sneak up on you and capture your heart. Third thought, the release of control. God says, I'm a jealous God. I visit inequity the third and fourth generations. Jealous doesn't mean that he's suspicious or distrustful, but that he demands exclusive devotion from you and me. Does he have it in your life? Are you devoted to him exclusively? Are there other things that capture your attention? You see, if Satan can capture your attention, he'll soon be controlling your actions. First commandment, you know what it tells us is? That he is the object of our worship. I'm not to worship anything else. I'm to worship him. Psalm 81.9, there shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. Exodus 34.14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Psalm 86, 9 and 10, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. You uh, are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Psalm 22, 27 and 28, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. That second commandment is how he is to be worshipped. You don't worship him with graven images. Jesus picked up on this in John chapter 4 when he said about true worship, he says the, now, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. You know what I love about where we are? You can't love the sanctuary. <laughs> you can't walk in, kick back, and go, oh, I just feel like I am in heaven. you got to get serious about worship. The first prayer of every follower of influence is, oh, Lord, comfort my other end. I was thinking, well, never mind, I could go on. I, I won't even say it. I won't even say it. Let me talk about generational sin for a minute. I, I'm, I'm going to do it by telling a story because it's a biblical story, and I think it will illustrate something. 
when Joshua takes the army and they go in to uh, inhabit the land, when they go in there, the Gibeonites disguise themselves and they put on clothes and they say we're travelers and Joshua kind of feels sorry for them and, and he makes a covenant with the Gibeonites. He never should have done it. He should have sought God and asked, should I make this covenant with these people who he didn't know were Gibeonites? So he has this foreign alliance now. God would honor that relationship with the Gibeonites because of Joshua, because God believed a man's word is his bond. Now, fast forward. King Saul comes to power. Now we're almost 400 years later. King Saul comes to power, and he, not following God, and decides he's going to bring revenge on the Gibeonites, doesn't seek God, doesn't honor the covenant, and he wipes out the Gibeonites. Now we come 30 years later, King David is now king, and all of a sudden there's a famine in the land. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 21. There's a famine in the land. He doesn't know why. He waits several years before he even asks God, God, what's going on? And God reveals to him it was because of what Saul did, became a man of blood and destroyed the Gibeonites and didn't honor the covenant. So here's David who is suffering the consequences of Joshua's agreement with the Gibeonites, Saul's mistake there with wiping out the Gibeonites, and Israel is suffering because of it. That, in principle, is what generational sin is. That bad decisions on the part of people in your family can affect the way that you live out your life and the freedom you have in Christ. The good news is, Galatians 3.13 says that Christ suffered the curse of the law for us. In other words, we don't have to be under bondage to anything or anyone because he who the Son sets free is free indeed. It's talking about children here, and if you have children, regardless what age they are, remember that Psalm 127 says children are like arrows of the Lord. Children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. And we are told that we are to raise them up, to pierce deep into the darkness. That's what arrows do. They fly away from you, and they're intended to hit a target and to make a difference. And it is God's command on us. Unfortunately, our children know very little about kingdom authority. They have been fed entertainment by parents who are more concerned with keeping them quiet putting him in front of a television, then equipping them for the greatest battle on earth, the battle of the eternal soul of man and woman. Turn off the TV for a while, set your children down, take this book out and teach them what it means to be a warrior for Jesus Christ. We are losing the battle if you haven't noticed. And don't be surprised if you get down the road somewhere and your adult children don't understand this book or the principle of the kingdom. We have to train them. And if you say, well, I don't even know what I'm doing with that. Then train yourself. Read this book and say, God, what do I do? I love that closing verse there, with closing verses in Joshua chapter 24. Listen to what he says. He, he's just sick and tired of the compromise that's going on in the nation, and he looks at him and he says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, is it evil to serve the Lord? 
then choose yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served on the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That is the carrying out of the first and second commandment of God. You don't put any gods before God. You don't worship a God, a foreign God. You don't carve something up. You don't give your attention and your affiliation to anything other than the Lord God himself. As for me and my household, what would, what would be the difference in your life and the generations that come of people you influence if you really stood for Jesus Christ, if you weren't ashamed? I, you, know, you know, I'm just kind of tired of guys just being kind of wimpy about this thing. Well, I, guys, I'd like to talk, but I'm afraid of what they're going to think of me. Well, they don't think about you at all anyway. You say you think they're sitting around going, I just think, of you know, no. No. Just throw it out there and see what happens. You might be surprised. You might be surprised. You go, really? I never thought about that. Throw it out there. There's a guy that hangs out at the Starbucks where I office. And uh, I've asked him to come over here at least a dozen times. And I decided to turn up the heat this week. I went over and I said, I won't call his name because he shows up. I said his name, and I go, you know, are you ever going to get right with God? Pretty straight, you know. And he said, nobody's ever asked me that. Everybody invites me to church. I said, I don't want you to come to church anymore. He said, you're wearing me out on this church thing. I said, I'd just soon you get right with God and, go, and figure it out yourself. Because, see, you can come to church and be not right with God. Getting, getting them here is not the goal. Getting them to know God is the goal, amen? And, and if they end up here, all the better. But I said, we're going to have this thing next week. Father's Day. It's the last time I'm going to ask you to church. I compromised a little bit. I said, I think you need to come and get right with God. He's got a big, always had a big cigar. I think I'll do that. Now, I know. I've been told by other people they'd come. They can lie to you like a gas meter. I'm telling you, they'll look you in the eye. <laughs> Let me give you a life application. Here's a few things. Number one. What is the object of your devotion and your attention? What is the object of your devotion and your attention in your life right now? Second one. The gods we serve want more and more control. They want more. They're going to give you less. They're going to want more as you go down the road of life. Take a stand. Take a stand and you'll release the power of God in your life. Pray for the power and you'll never see it. Take a stand and you'll see the power of God in your life. Stand up and see what God can do. People say, I'm just praying for power. Oh, that gives me a pain I can't locate. Take God at his word and stand. Isn't that what he says in Ephesians 6? Having done all to stand, stand therefore, put on the whole armor of God. 
that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, put on the helmet of your salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, your loins shod and your feet shod, and, and do, go out and do battle. The only part of your body that's not protected in that suit of armor is your back. Reminds me of the, of the motto of the French Foreign Legion. If I stumble, pick me up. If I falter, push me on. If I retreat, shoot me. We're not to retreat. We're to be the army that goes forward. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, as we stand and we stand like Joshua stood and say, God, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. God, you are calling men and women to stand for you. You're calling men to influence their world for Jesus Christ. Father, we, uh, there are plenty of places where a person can go and just not be challenged and not be told stuff like this. But God, I believe that in the heart of every one of us is the warrior to stand for Jesus Christ, to make a difference in this world that we live. Father, we pray that we can be transformational in our message. We pray, God, that the Spirit of God would fill us in such a way, would empower us in such a way that we would walk with great courage and great power. God, that we would put aside every weight and sin that so easily besets us and run the race that you've given us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. God, I believe there are people here today that need to know you. I believe there are people that need to be saved today, God. They need to call on your name, and I just pray if that's you, if you're not certain about your eternal salvation, I'm going to ask you right now just to pray a prayer like this one. Lord Jesus... Forgive me of my sin. Lord Jesus, I believe you died and were buried and rose from the dead, Lord Jesus. And I, I give my life and my, my whole being to you. I want to live for you. Save me, Lord Jesus. Save me. It may be that you'll just want to slip down here and put a prayer request on the cross. You may be you want to come down here in the front and let us pray for you. Or you want to talk with someone. But I believe this is a time where we engage God. Every one of us engage God. And ask God to do something in our life. As we sing and as we worship, allow the Spirit of God to move in your heart. Would you do that right now?